Well, last week we saw Jesus teaching a crowd of 5,000 people, and he filled them with the wonderful news of God's kingdom. And as we've been learning all along in Mark's gospel, God through Jesus topples down sin, disease, death, and all evil. And after Jesus fills the souls of the people with his teaching, he fills their hunger with multiplied loaves and fishes. You see, we learned last week that at the hands of Jesus, our deepest spiritual and physical needs are met. No other person can do for us what Jesus does. And this week is quite a contrast. Because unlike the crowds who received Jesus' teaching, the Pharisees and scribes from the important city of Jerusalem come to question Jesus and his disciples. Verse 6, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? That accusation about how Jesus and the disciples don't wash ceremonially before they eat, I think is the link between Mark chapter 6, where you have the feeding of 5,000 people, presumably with unclean hands, and Mark chapter 7 that deals with the question of religious uncleanness. That's the link there. The religious leaders, they don't see the wonderful works of God. Instead, they just see Jesus and his disciples breaking with religious practices. Now, I want to be clear about what is upsetting the Pharisees and the scribes. The accusation is not about hygiene. This is not about the scribes and Pharisees chastising Jesus and his disciples because like kids, they don't wash their hands before they eat. That's not what's going on here. Although you should wash your hands before you eat, no matter who you are, right? It's about Jesus and his disciples eating in an unclean state before God, which Jewish tradition forbids. Here's the issue. You can picture this. Jesus and his disciples, they go out to the marketplace, and they're mixing among ceremonially clean and unclean people, and when they return, they don't ceremonially wash their hands, and they are unclean before God. But the deeper problem with Jesus and his disciples is this. He welcomes tax collectors. He heals lepers. He touches dead bodies, and they are raised up. All of this would have rendered him and his disciples ceremonially unclean. Now, as you can see from verse 4, Jewish tradition provides a long list of items that are required to be cleaned before they are used because they're in contact with human flesh and fluids, cups, pots, even couches. Don't think too closely about the couches. A whole slew of things that needed to be cleaned before they could be used. And the funny thing is, Mark doesn't even touch the surface of all the ceremonial washings that are required in Jewish tradition. You see, in Judaism then and now, there is a list of, there's a codified list of traditions that are the authoritative teaching on Jewish law. They apply the Jewish law authoritatively, and those uh, books are called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And Jesus and his disciples, as these oral traditions have been passed down, they don't follow them. And because they don't follow them, 
They are charged with breaking God's law and being unclean in their hearts. You see, to the Pharisees, the external religious practices show a person standing before God. How well you keep to tradition or religious practices tells you what you are really doing spiritually. And the truth is that it's not only the Pharisees who think this way. This way of thinking plagues every human heart and shows up everywhere. When I talk to my Muslim friends about religion, they tell me that to enter into paradise, I must adhere to the five pillars of Islam. When I talk to my Hindu neighbors, they tell me that the way of salvation is through the way of works, the way of knowledge, or the way of religious devotion. You see, being good at being religious as the way of salvation is found everywhere. And it even rears its head in the most unexpected times. Like when I was in a used car dealership, I was just sitting there drinking bad coffee from a foam cup. Six months ago when I was purchasing a car, the salesman Fred asked what I did for a living, and I said to him, I'll only tell you if you promise to give me a 5% clergy discount. He laughed too, but he didn't give me the discount. Now shortly after that, probably because I was already signing my, my life away, I had, nothing, I had no more money to lose, I had, had nothing to lose really, I figured I would ask him, do you go to church? And what are your thoughts about God? And Fred said, oh yeah, I've been to church. I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I've taken communion, and so have my kids. We are good. Now, we might be tempted to think it's typical on, for, the, um, for people on that end of the church to think this way about tradition and religious practice, right? That's, that's an issue on that side of the church. But it's not an issue just on that end of the church. Jessica Wilbanks Wilbanks, in her memoir, paints a picture of what it was like to grow up in her independent church. She says, there were rules for everything. Everything was crystal clear, black and white, what we wore, what music we could listen to or not listen to, who we could hang out with. And you always wanted to be among the people who kept to every rule. She says, the church I grew up in started to feel less like a temple and more like a cage. You see, in terms of church background, Jessica and Fred are on opposite branches of Christianity. Yet their experience show that they actually sit right next to each other. Christian faith is about doing religious activities in the right way and being good. That was the message that they were hearing. Now, some of you might be thinking deep down, That's why I don't really trust organized religion. I make my own decisions about faith. I trust my own judgment and follow my own path of what seems right to me. And whether we realize it or not, faith understood as a private choice where each person finds his or her own path is to practice religion according to the tradition of Western secularism. 
the authoritative commandment of Western secularism is this, that the solitary individual, not the institution, is the ultimate authority of what is right and what is wrong. And believe it or not, there is a Christian version of this. And it goes something like this. It's me and my Bible and Jesus, and that's all I need. Don't get me wrong. We need the Bible. We absolutely need Jesus. But what that ends up becoming is we are suspicious of everyone else, everyone else's biblical interpretation except our own. And that way of thinking about faith is actually rooted in secularism. See, all of us, whether we are aware of it or not, have been shaped by ideas that have been passed down to us. And all of us, whether we are raised as Christians or not, by nature create a list of externals to determine how well we are doing before God, and we judge others by those standards as well. And guess what? When we judge other people by our standards, we end up looking pretty good. Now, tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's an inevitable thing of how we do life as humans. But spiritually speaking, what our passage today shows us is that tradition traps us when it crowds out our true life with God. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at two ways that religious rights go wrong and what Jesus does to make it right. Two ways that religious rights go wrong and what Jesus does to make it right. Here's the first one. Religious rights go wrong when we put them above the clear teaching about who God is and what he requires. You see, in Jesus' day, adherence to the oral laws, uh, oral traditions, according to the Pharisees, was just as important as obeying God's law itself. Pharisees and scribes spent many more hours reading and memorizing the Old Testament than most of us ever will. So how could it be that they elevated oral tradition above the written word of God? Here's how. In their thinking, the goal of tradition was to put a fence around God's law for the people so they wouldn't get anywhere near breaking it. So, for instance, in Leviticus, the priests, not the ordinary Israelites, had to do ceremonial washings before they handled uh, sacrifice and food at a temple offering. That was a requirement for the priests. But Jewish tradition added that all people had to undergo ceremonial washings, not just when they're at the temple, but when they're at home eating. They wanted to preserve and honor God's law. But what they ended up doing was building a fence that was so long and so high that people could no longer see the real reason of why we were given God's law. What was the intent of God's law? They've missed that now. And Jesus points to the problem that this creates. Notice he doesn't respond to their accusation about tradition by quoting tradition. 
No, he quotes God's authoritative written word to them. He says to them in verse 6, You hypocrites, as it is written about you from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now, when you hear that, you wonder, why is Jesus being so harsh? Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes because they're responsible for maintaining religious, a religious system of rights that distorts the meaning of God's law. The Word of God was given to us to teach us truth about God. But when they used it, they pushed people away from God. And people left the truth. And so Jesus' words matches the severity of their offense. Jesus calls them hypocrites, meaning they are people who wear masks, literally. They do a lot of religious activities. They know all the words to the songs. They know exactly what to do in worship. They give their money away. They do everything just right. But for all the God talk on their lips, it never trickles down into their heart. It has no influence on who they are and what they are about. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He is not condemning spiritual practices or outward expressions of worship. We are to honor God with our lips, but it can't stop there. And that was the problem for the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus goes on to tell us what they were really about. He gives them a three-point sermon. You see, we didn't make that up. This actually comes from Jesus. Verse 7, they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You see, Jesus' three points actually make the same point. They drop what God asked them to do And they embrace and hold on with both hands what God never instructed them to touch or to do. They are all about what God was never for. This reveals the heart of their theology. To the Pharisees, God is someone who is pleased by the external performance of religious acts. It's as if God is a factory supervisor going to station to station, checking off, lists, checking off things off lists as things are completed, the tasks are done. And we see this at the heart of what the Pharisees are about throughout Mark's gospel. In chapter 3, the Pharisees ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast, implying according to the religious tradition? In chapter 4, they ask, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And now in chapter 7, why do, your fares, uh, why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? These concerns paint God as cold, distant, exacting, and entirely uninterested in the real matters of our lives. The kinds of stuff that keep us up at night that we wrestle with, that's not what God is most concerned about. 
What could be a more corrupted view of God than that? The Gospels show us what God is like in the person of Jesus Christ. In the face of sin, He provides forgiveness. In the face of suffering, He provides healing. In the face of sadness, He brings joy. When there is rejection, He brings His acceptance. To those who are deceived by lies, Jesus Christ brings the truth. The Pharisees are worried about unwashed hands, and Jesus is concerned about our afflicted hearts. Every day, the scribes and the Pharisees would have prayed this. In fact, all Jewish people would have prayed this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy says, circumcise your hearts. Proverbs says, guard your hearts. First Samuel says, God looks at the heart and they missed the heart of the matter. They substituted the internal response to God with external performance, thinking God was pleased with the latter and had no real regard for the former. Now, how could they do that? It's because it's the default setting of how the human heart relates to God. It's the natural religion of every human heart. I must do this so that God would be pleased with me. The truth is that even if we grow up in churches that teach that we are saved by God's grace alone, this way of relating to God keeps coming back. Here's a very common example. I'll ask someone how they are relating to God these days, and I'll hear some version of this. Oh, I haven't been reading my Bible, praying like I should, or you fill in the blank. I haven't been going to church. I haven't been tithing. That's always awkward because I don't know what to say to people. It seems inappropriate to say, well, there actually are three ways to give. I haven't been serving like I should. I haven't gone to small group. What are we to infer from this statement? Because I'm not praying or reading my Bible or whatever I'm not good or, or whatever I'm not supposed to be doing. I'm not good with God. I'm not good with God. The gospel is not my grip on God is strong, therefore I am secure because I pray, because I read my Bible. No, it's that in Jesus Christ, God has forever put his eternal, unshakable grip on me, and though I falter and fail, he remains faithful to the end. That's the gospel. The answer to human guilt is not, well, you better get going. No, God's answer to human guilt is grace. Grace that makes it safe and effectual to repent of our sins. Grace that, makes it, that enables us to believe his promise. It is our inclination to run away from God. It is God's inclination to reach down and to rescue us. That is God's heart. And when you hear the news that this is what God is really like, what do you want to do? Do you want to praise God? 
Do you want to cry out for joy? <laughs> Do you want to spend time with God in prayer? Do you want to learn more about the God, about this God in His Word? Do you want to be with His people in worship? You see, when we start with the gospel first, we get the response we most need. When we start to think that God is someone who only wants us around when we pray or read the Bible enough, we are substituting human standards in place of God's teaching about his character. Now, if our religious rights go wrong on how we are to love God, then that also has a trickle-down effect on how we are to love our neighbor as well. You'll remember that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments given to Moses have to do with our love for God. And the last six have to do with our love for our neighbor. Commandment number five says this, honor your father and mother. This is the commandment Jesus reiterates in verse 10. The first neighbors we are to love are our parents. This is about as close to celebrating Mother's Day and Father's Day you get in the Bible. It's why we're preaching on this text between Mother's Day and Father's Day, so there you go. Now, in a society where there was no social security or 401ks or pensions, it was up to the children to take care of their parents when they were getting older. But the Pharisees and scribes had a tradition that allowed a child to pledge their possessions to the temple upon their death. That pledge was called korban, meaning it was dedicated to God. That was one of the traditions. So you can imagine, you have a child with aging parents who are in need of help, and the child could say, sorry, mom and dad, I'd love to help you, but all this stuff that I have, I've, I've actually pledged to the temple when I die. You see, what that allowed the child to do was use their possessions as much as they wanted while they were living, and when they died, it just went to the temple. So the child wins, the temple wins, but poor mom and dad are left vulnerable and uncared for. And most importantly, what does this tradition do? It disregards the law of God. One commentator nails down the evil of this practice so well. He writes this, A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not to give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. The late Anglican theologian and author J.I. Packer nicely summarizes the takeaway point from this passage, which is, the question then is not whether we have traditions because every church does, but whether our traditions conflict with the only absolute standard on these manners, which is Holy Scripture. That's what this is about. Now, I want to be clear. There are lots of matters where the local church and individual Christians have wide range of liberty to practice their faith. The order of worship service, music style, what to wear for worship, whether there should be choirs or bands or just a piano. I know you have strong opinions about that, but Scripture doesn't. On matters where Scripture is silent, we have liberty. But here's the thing that makes our local church 
a bit different from other Christian traditions. The church has no authority to bind your conscience on an issue where Scripture is silent. The church has no authority to bind your conscience on matters where Scripture is silent. Scripture and Scripture alone is our highest authority. And because it is our highest authority, the aim of the church is to make God's Word central to your life. The center from which you live your life before God. And there's a reason for that. An encounter with God's Word can change you from the inside out in a way that religious rites can never, never can. And that's the second way religious rites go wrong. They can never change the heart. In verses 14 and 23, Jesus makes it clear through the example of food that nothing on the outside of a person can make them unclean by going into them. Baptist preacher Steve Lawson puts this well. He says, the heart of the human problem is the human heart. Food touches the stomach, but it cannot touch our souls. True faith a faith that isn't about mere formalities, but imparts true life, must affect the human heart. You see, religious activity, divorced from a renewed heart, actually brings corruption. Our fundamental problem, right, despite what we might naturally think, despite what we hear on TV, is not that we don't have spiritual practices, or that we're raised in a bad family, or that we didn't get a good enough education. Those are issues, but that is not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem, as we heard in Jeremiah, is that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. So sick and so deceitful, it's an unsolvable math equation. That's how deeply evil the human heart is. Do you ever go to work or ever go to school and say, what's wrong with my teacher? Ever go to work and say, what's wrong with my boss? This is what's wrong with your boss. It's also what's wrong with you and me and your mother-in-law and your father. Okay. Secular or religious, Christian or non-Christian, male or female, adults or children, married or single, our hearts are turned away from God and turned in on ourselves. Now, when we say the word heart, what do we mean by that? Roman Catholic theologian Mary Healy puts, puts it this way in her commentary. According to the Bible, the heart represents the inner depths of the person, the seat of decision where a person either responds to God or resists Him. The heart is the source of emotions, love, grief, anxiety, and joy, but it is also the source of thought, will, and conscience. And where the trouble starts, according to Jesus, is with our evil thoughts, is in our thinking. 
every evil action we commit, whether we are conscious of it or not, starts with our evil thoughts. We even ask people when they do something wrong, what were you thinking? Evil thoughts lead to evil actions. Here Jesus lists sexual immorality, that is sexual activity before marriage, extramarital affairs, so call that adultery later on, having open marriages, use of pornography, same-sex sexual activity, or lusting after another person, whether the opposite sex or the same sex. No matter who we are, all of us are inclined to break all of God's laws in every way. It's not that some people are born sexually immoral and others not. No, we are all born sexually immoral. And we break God's law all across the board. And Jesus continues with the list. Theft. All of us are tempted to take something from others that doesn't belong to us, whether that's cheating on a test or cheating the insurance company. It's what we're inclined to do. As much as we would love to say we are caring and loving people, man, when those thoughts about that person come up, we can't help but be filled with anger and resentment no matter how many times we've said in our hearts we forgive them. Murder them in our hearts. When we hear that others get the job or the grade that we want, it isn't our instinct to say, I'm so happy for them. It's, no, I deserve what they've been given. That's covetousness. And then we start to speak ill of the other person and their reputation. That's slander. And then we do all that we can. We do all that we can to make sure that we get our way. That we're number one. That's pride. And that's the root of our problems, the cause of all other problems. What this text shows us is that what we need is a new heart. Good religious practices can mask the symptoms but cannot treat the disease of sin. And in the very next scene of this passage, Jesus shows the extent he is willing to go to give us a new heart. In verses 24 to 30, we discover how Jesus makes things right. We get a picture there. Because Jesus, after he teaches the disciples here, goes off into Gentile territory to people who worship idols, who are outside the covenant with God, who are as unclean as they could come And a Gentile woman approaches Jesus and asks Jesus in sincere faith if he would be willing to do for her what he has done for the Jewish people who are inside God's covenant. And though she's on the outside, in mercy he grants her request. He casts out the unclean spirits that have overtaken the woman's daughter at that home and her home, and when he grants her that request, all that was evil and unclean was made good and new for her. 
made new from the inside out. That's what Jesus did. And though we are outside of the covenant because of our sin, Jesus can do for us what he had done for this woman and her daughter. He can give us the same renewal in our hearts when we turn to him. And what starts to happen when Jesus renovates our hearts and plants his word in our minds, we learn to become the kind of people who don't harbor harsh thoughts towards others, but we actually start to think good of them who preserve in sexual purity whatever our orientation, who experience happiness when others experience happiness as well, who don't take from others when we become afraid, but we actually learn how to be content with what we have, who read God's word and who pray not to be religious, but because knowing God and living for him is what brings our new hearts the greatest joy. And the truth is, Jesus is willing to go much farther than than to Gentile country to give us this new heart. He's willing to go all the way to the cross to give up his own life so that we could have a new one, to give us what we most desperately need. And it is his delight to give us this heart that we desperately need. And when you ask him to do this, he will do it. May God give us the grace to do so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that In your great love, you did not simply give us a moral code to follow, but you gave us your very self. You joined together your divine nature to human nature to show us that you are our God with us and for us forever. And because you have done it, we can be made new. For the first time, or again and again, your heart can be ours. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us the grace to live in light of the new heart that you have given us, to give us strength to overcome the sins that continue to plague us, to help us to be more compassionate to others in our thoughts and especially in our deeds. Only you can do this. And we thank you that you are willing to do this by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for all that you've done and given us. In your name we pray. Amen.